I'm Karen Lewis, and thank you for listening to Recovery Bites, real talk with recovered professionals. This podcast is about life in recovery from an eating disorder. The good and the not so good. The successes and the challenges. Episodes will include stories from fully recovered professionals about the sometimes sad, sometimes painful, but always beautiful accounts from their recovery. Not their whole story, just bites. All right, everyone. I don't even know where to go with introducing this episode, but just saying, wow. My guest for today is Aaron Flores, and I am a groupie. By the way, I don't even know if, if Aaron has any more fans, but if he does, I am saying on this podcast, I would like to apply to be the president of the Aaron Flores fan club. An incredible voice to be heard. Aaron is a dietitian living out in Los Angeles. And I think you're all going to understand what I'm saying when you hear this episode. What a powerful voice. There's parts of this episode that are truly funny, mostly because Aaron is hysterical. There's nothing that I like better than a dry sense of humor. But the majority of this is really serious. We are talking about weight stigma and it is really, really imperative for everybody to pay attention to this episode. We are talking about the fact that when voices are not heard, people assume there is no story to be told and that could not be farther from the truth. The impact that weight stigma has on society and our healthcare system can actually potentially be deadly for some people. We also talk about holding organizations accountable for their truth, their transparency, and for showing up and creating weight inclusive organizations where everybody is seen and everybody is heard. I think this is a great one. As as they all are, this one though, I just think is going to really, really make people think twice. So I hope you enjoy it. I think it's fantastic. And again, if anyone else wants to be in his fan club, don't forget, I called president. All right, here we go. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. All right, everybody, we're going to be laughing through this episode. Today, my guest is registered dietitian, Aaron Flores. Aaron, before we go any further, I just want to say hello. Hi, thanks, Karen, for having me on. I am. I was going to say I'm so glad to have you on, but I'm actually going to say I'm a little scared. And listeners, I'll tell you why. Aaron is a jokester. 
Uh, so just to start, when I when I start the episode beforehand, I tell the guests certain things and I say, I have a problem with interrupting, so I'm going to raise my hand if I want to interrupt. So Aaron has decided to ignore my hand raise and talk for 45 minutes straight just to irritate me. And uh, let me just say, I would never do it in real life. Like in my head, I'm hilarious, right? In real life, I'm like, ooh, that would be so mean, Aaron. Come on, don't ever do that. That would actually be so funny, Aaron. I can't stand it. Anyway, all kidding aside, Aaron, you uh, have have so much that I want to talk about. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about what you're doing, what you do now, and then we'll get into some of the more of the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. So I am based out of Los Angeles, and I have a private practice that's obvious, obviously all virtual now. Um, my office is based out of the West Valley in Calabasas. So I have a private practice where I see folks who are either struggling with eating disorders or chronic dieters or struggle with um, body image. Uh, usually it's a lot of folks who have experienced a lot of weight stigma and, and need support around that. And then I also work at Center for Discovery where I'm the senior coordinator for weight inclusive care. And it's a new position uh, at CFD and new to me and really trying to do the very hard work of trying to make uh, this our treatment centers more accessible around body size. And then lastly, you know, just just because just I have a couple free minutes, two part-time jobs is not enough. So I have a podcast called Dietitians Unplugged as well that I co-host with Glennis Oyston. Which I am going to highly recommend to everyone. Um, it is a fantastic, fantastic podcast. So Aaron, I don't even know where to begin because there is so much rich stuff to talk about in this episode. First of all, you had talked about the fact that you are not, and correct me if I'm wrong, are not recovered from an eating disorder, but somewhat recovered from a life of diet cycling, of body image distress. Do I, do I have that correct? Yeah, I was never diagnosed with having an eating disorder. I spent years dieting, uh, and could I have met criteria looking back on it now? I probably could have. Uh, I think no one had any concerns about what I was doing because of my gender and because of my body size. Yeah. And the reason why I bring that up is people don't understand the diet mentality can, to some de degree, be just as emotionally paralyzing and debilitating, which is why I wanted to make sure to say, yeah, you struggled with chronic dieting and that's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and it was, yeah, it was horrible. I mean, you know, for sure it was, it was not, um, a, an existence that was sustainable, was, uh, compassionate in any way. I think as I've done this work more and more, what I've realized a lot is, you know, because of just, I, I think for a lot of different reasons, but like, I think just as I started to start to heal my relationship with food and, and body, it was a, a, a long process. It wasn't like a formal process. It was sort of done on my own. And I think one of the things that's really important is some folks that's not it. That's not going to work for them, right? Some folks, it, it they're so far in it um, that that they 
it, you know, you can't just pull yourself out just by doing this. So I think, you know, I want to just sort of say that out loud because some folks really are, are feeling, you know, there, there's a lot of messaging around like, well, why don't you just blank? Right. Why, you know, I don't understand why you're just blank and, and why, you know, can't you make it better? And some people can't do that on their own. And that's why there's, there's, there needs to be so much support for people out there. I also want to point out what you said is that even if it was something that met criteria of diagnosis, nobody asked you, or it was not very much brought up because you're male and because of your weight. So people assumed that there was no disordered eating or anything like that. What are your thoughts? Oh, absolutely. I was celebrated. You know, it was, there was, it was met with praise at every, at every corner that I turn um, from family, from friends, from uh, like dating, from accessibility to, you know, moving around the world, uh, going to a restaurant, eating alone, right? When you're thin and you eat alone in a restaurant, no one cares. Uh, when you're in a larger body and you eat alone in a restaurant, everyone seems to watch you. Again, I don't even know where to go with this because my mind is running in a million directions right now. One of the things that you and I talked about prior to, to going on air is it also is that there is such a stereotype of what an eating disorder is. And I want to I put this in with what you were talking about, the restaurant that people don't notice people in a thin body, they do in a larger body. I am overly impressed with the fact that you, did you start the program at the VA or did you found it? The um, Yes. In essence, um, the, 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 the short stories I was working there, I was, for folks who know me now, this is a, a complete 180, but I was actually running a weight loss program at the VA. I, you know, I didn't start within a Hayes paradigm. Um, I, I, I came to this work um, in, sort of haphazard, not haphazardly, but just through a lot of evolution. And I needed that evolution to sort of do something very different. But I was working in a weight loss program and seeing just vets come in, struggling with trauma, struggling with, um, with, with eating at, at different times of the day that was like very connected to traumatic experiences. And, and it was really from there and like learning about organizations like BETA and and learning about what binge eating disorder is, where I was like, oh my goodness, like all these folks who are coming in are struggling are struggling with a with an eating disorder. They're not, it's not a um why are we telling them to lose weight? They have an eating disorder. And so the the beauty thing, the beautiful thing about the VA is that there's always folks who are coming in who our, our students may be doing postdoc work or maybe doing internships or, or residencies who want to do something out of the box. And so I met up with a postdoc fellow who was like, yeah, let's do this group. And we started a, a binge eating disorder group. Which breaks the stereotype of what we think an eating disorder is, which is the, you know, single white sophomore college girl with anorexia nervosa, things like that. It is, it, I, the field is exploding right now with all of this talk. There's so much going on, 
first of all, let me ask you a question. Why did it take so long for the field to start using their voices so much about binge eating disorder, health at every size? There's things that are happening in organizations right now that that I'd love to talk about. So why is it that it took so long? Because so many people, in my from my perspective, have been harmed by not being recognized. You know, I think that's a really great way of framing this question. And and I'm going to answer it with an I don't know in some ways, because I feel still relatively new to the eating disorder community. I've been a dietitian for over 10 years, but again, a large part of that was me working from a different paradigm. It took time for me to evolve. I would say I, I you know, I'm with relatively like new to the field, like seven, six, seven years, let's say. So um, I come, I think I come at it with a fairly f- fresh set of eyes in, in a lot of ways. Um, I'll, I'll be honest, the, the things that speak to me about doing this work and to sort of answer your question is I think we need to do a much better job of understanding how eating disorders don't happen in a silo and that there are so many factors that are involved in people's recovery journey, um, in, in part of the reason why they developed eating disorders. And as we learn more and more about really how prevalent you know, eating disorders are in our world, especially, especially during a pandemic where people are really, you know, struggling mental in, with, with mental health in a lot of ways, um, is sort of getting rid of this like Saturday afternoon NBC special of like, you know, Sally has an eating disorder, uh, a very special episode of whatever. Um, what, you know, and I think that was just the myth that was perpetuated that got ingrained. Um, but I, but when I zoom out and think about it, that is not just because of that Saturday afternoon special, right? It's not just because of, um, you know, like that's who, um, presented it's, I think we have to zoom out and look at the whole system, right? We have to look at how insurance uh, gives time for folks in eating disorder treatment and how that can be very biased and skewed. We have to look at the research community and where are the dollars being spent with the research. Um, we have to look at why is, you know, uh, um, eating disorder research being tied to um, quote unquote obesity research and why are those somehow connected? And I think we need to ask the organizations that that are nonprofits that are out there is how are you using your influence to, to help move the dials, right? So I think um, looking at, you know, how do organizations like NIDA advocate for inclusivity instead of, you know, sort of maybe even taking a step back? Because the reality is there are many voices that are not being heard. And, and when they're not heard, people assume it's not a story. It's not a real thing. And, and there's something really powerful. I I think about going back to the VA. I think about that first time I presented to a group of vets about what is binge eating disorder and explaining the criteria, what it looks like, why people 
you know, might, might develop this eating disorder, what it looks like, how you can start the healing process. And like, not everyone, obviously, but like you could see the light bulbs go off in that room with people like, oh, that's what I'm dealing with. Right. And to like look around the room and see other people who look like them with a similar experience saying, yeah, that's me too. Right. There's something about common humanity when we see others who look like us with a similar struggle. We say, I'm not alone. I, it, this is not something I'm going to deal with in a silo. There's people who can understand, validate my experience instead of dismiss it. And, and, and through that is where this healing starts. Yeah. A few weeks back, I had Shavise Turner on the podcast and we were talking about the fact that I feel like we have just begun to budge the needle just a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would agree. I think we've, we, that needle and, and someone like Shavise um, really needs to be applauded for for helping move that dial i mentioned beta i mean i wouldn't be here talking to you if it wasn't for beta and and what that uh binge eating disorder association for those who don't know um and she founded that organization i wouldn't be here without the work of someone like chavise turner and, and countless others like deborah gard lindo bacon lucy affermore um etc i mean there's just countless people who have paved the way for this work and helped move the dial. The, the, the question is how far, I mean, where do we need to go is I, we need to go all the way. Um, and, and for me, that looks like being like having open conversations, right? I mean, the reason I'm so thankful to be doing the work I'm doing at CAFD is we want to be transparent. We know that there is a lot of work to do, um, that we are not there yet. We're not saying we're there yet. We're just saying we're going to be honest about where we are in our process and that we're going to have hard conversations. Um, I also think that, you know, I, I know that the, the podcast, you know, you talk about being recovered and, and I, I'm going to sort of also say like, I think I, I, I struggle with recovered versus recovering. Um, just so many of my clients who like, feel like they're doing really well can hit bumps and they struggle. And then they're like, Oh, but like, I'm now my, like, like what terminology are we using? Right. I'm like, I don't care what word you use. Right. Let's, let's bring some humanity into this and say, you know what, this is going to be a really hard road. And for some folks, this is a really, really bumpy road. And there I've had like a handful of clients. It's like been the theme who have said, why didn't anyone really tell me how hard this recovery process was going to be. Like everyone said it was going to be great. I'll, I'll be healed from food and I'll be able to eat. And they're like, I'm not there yet. And I'm like, it's hard. It's brutal work. I needed someone to be really honest with me. By the way, you just hit the nail on the head as the entire reason for this podcast. I used to have clients that walked into my office and would say in tears, I'm not doing it right. Life is still really hard. I'm still struggling with relationships. I'm still struggling with them. And what I would say to them is, oh my God, first of all, I don't even know if we want to define it as right or wrong, but you're doing it. It's all that matters. And it comes with a lot of complexity. And 
I can't tell you how relieved clients were because they kept thinking, have I failed at being recovered? And I'm thinking, you haven't failed at anything because first of all, you're showing up in my office, you're asking these questions, you're feeling these emotions. So there's no such thing as failing. But I couldn't believe how many people said to me, my life isn't perfect. And I I, I use I use the expression, I, I don't have songbirds that wake me every morning, Aaron. I don't. I still go through all the ups and downs of life. And for someone to say that your life is going to be perfect and fantastic and wonderful as a recovered person, they're lying. Nobody has a life like that. It doesn't exist. And I, I feel really badly for people that have been given that message. It's very discouraging and it's very disappointing. Absolutely. And and it's like, and it's happening all the time, right? I mean, I think it's just, it it's, this is where, again, I, I, I'm, when I say like, how far do we need to go? We need to go all the way to where clinicians feel comfortable having really hard conversations with their clients at all stages of their, their, their healing work and, and hard conversations might be around, Hey, I don't know where your body is going to go during recovery. I don't know where your weight will go. Some of it might be naming weight stigma and, and other like oppressive factors and getting comfortable with talking about racism and and social justice issues and lgbtq issues and transphobia and all of the things that are generally not sort of making it into the room but we need to have these conversations including this is going to be really hard like this is going to be really hard and um you know it it might take a lot of time and it's not linear and and all of that is okay and so my mentors, um, Hillary and Dana from Be Nourished, always talked about doing C-level work. And I tell my clients that all the time. Do C-level work. You don't have to get an A in this, right? It just, like, part of this work is just showing up, right? Like, doing the work, like, trying to, like, you know, do the best you can. But some days that's not as good as yesterday, and that's okay, what do you say to the client that sits across from you and using the really powerful example you said at the beginning of the podcast that if a thin person is sitting alone in a restaurant, nobody stares at them if, or makes assumptions. A person in a larger body, there are, there's judgment, assumptions, things like that. What do you say to the client that comes into your office that says, I can't sit alone in a restaurant without people looking at me. I say, yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's, and I, I tell them like, this is a fucked up world and, and it's incredibly fat phobic and, and it's not your fault, right? You deserve to go out to eat. You deserve to eat whatever food you choose to eat. Right. It's it. I think we need to really validate the experience of of someone when they're showing up in a marginalized identity, and when they say like, "I think everyone's looking at me when I eat out." Some folks, because they 
might not have ever experienced that because of whatever privileges they have might just say, Oh, come on. No one really cares what you're eating. Right. Which like dismisses the lived experience. Instead, it's like, yeah, I can understand like how horrible that would be. And you're right. They might be. And, and how horrible that is. Right. How many of our clients have been given the line, oh, no, 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 nobody's staring at you. It's not all about you because the clinician is uncomfortable with stating the obvious of, yeah, you're right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think we this is where we need to name weight stigma with all of our clients. With I don't, I don't care what body size they have. We need to name the impact of weight stigma in our society. And we need to name fat phobia. We need to get comfortable with the word fat in, in the room. And, and there's a lot of, of externalizing, right. Of like bringing in these outside factors, these outside influences into the room because they become internalized by the client. They're showing up in the client. And so again, the, the internal message is my body is the problem. My body's broken. It's not, you know, uh, it's not, uh, okay, I need to shrink it, I need to change it, whatever. That's all internalized messages from a fat phobic world. And if we can work on saying, you learned all this, and you learned all, all of it from a society that is incredibly problematic. And it, it doesn't, all of this, right? I've, I've, I've said this and, and clinicians who are maybe new to this, which is great, like let's you know dive in, is realize it doesn't make it easier. Like this is not like the fix it answer. This is actually like, well, my clients are like, well, now you're asking me to change society. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, on some level, yeah. And guess what? We can do it and it's not gonna happen tomorrow. So the more we name it and externalize it and realize how crappy it is, the maybe the more resilience we build within ourselves. I want to honor, though, the client that comes through the door that has had so much shame and judgment thrusted upon them that they may not have the strength as, as you know, I want to say to them, go out there, be an advocate, use your voice. They're often like, I, I don't have the strength, Karen. I don't have the energy. That's why what has been happening in our field over the last few weeks, the last few months, whatever, all of this upheaval, which is rich, rich with dialogue about bringing this weight stigma, all of these biases to the forefront. It is our job, Aaron, to be the ones to do it until they get some of the energy. Listen, I have clients that walk into my office and they're like, sign me up. Where do I be the advocate? Not everybody has that though. Mm -hmm. you're, no, you're absolutely right. And I think the, if I were to say, you know, where, where am I hoping the field goes Right. The reason I'm so concerned about Nita's actions and, and how are they going to champion inclusivity um, for the community is, is we need connectedness on this issue. Like we people, the, the folks that you're talking about, right? I, I they come into my office too, right? Like I can't do that yet. 
yeah, you're right. You can't do that yet. But if you had a peer who was feeling the same or, or even farther along, right. Almost like as a mentor <laughs> type type experience is I I'm not seeing enough community built within our recovery process that is helping people stay connected, right. That is helping people say like, Oh, here are my people, right. Here are the folks that like now who get it. Right. And, and, and I can sort of, along with my dietitian, along with my therapist, along with my coach, whoever you're working with, right? I can also call my friend Larry and say, oh my goodness, like I was just talking to so-and-so and they spent 30 minutes talking about their diet and I'm so pissed and angry, right? Or I just watched an episode of The Office and, and there was some like horrible fat phobic thing in there and all all Larry's going to do is just listen and support me and say, yeah, yeah I saw that episode. It's horrible. Instead of saying, I don't know why you're so pissed. Yeah, let's move on. Like we need more, so much more community and connectedness. This may be, uh, I, I don't think it's irrelevant, but this, it might be. What does, what do statements such as, and by the way, we are filming this, filming, are we filming? We're, we're well, on, yeah, there's some digital filming going on here. You and I are filming. We're recording this um, right after Trump has been released from the hospital. What does it say when I have heard report after report after report them saying, the two factors that could be difficult for Trump is he's 74 and using their words, he is obese. Uh, yeah. It is like a loop now in my brain because the two main factors that they talk about, what does that say, Aaron, about our, about the way we view people and health? What does that say about the ignorance of health of, of a body? Yeah. You know, it, it, again, I think what we, tend to do in medicine um, is we tend to boil things down to very simple interventions that we think will have the most impact. What is the easiest, quickest solution to help with all of these things? Oh, let's make it about weight. And if we look at the president, I think it's a great example, right? Um, I'm not even going to talk about his lack of responsibility. Um, we're not going to go there, but we're going to talk about the, the access he has. We don't have time. We don't have time. Yeah, that. right. That's a that's another 37-hour episode. Um, I think what we need to really look at when we look at the president is access. Here is someone who, as soon as something was wrong, got on a helicopter, flown to his own private room with a team of medical professionals probably more than more advisors medically than is probably helpful given a treatment from, it sounds like very like, you know, cutting edge, like, you know, not very, not used very often released in two days, three days. Right. Um, and, and, and if he ever does get sick again, we'll get the best medical care possible. And if we look at the other folks in the community who are getting COVID, we see that it's 
mostly people of color, mostly lower socioeconomic status folks, and and we see that their access to care is poor, right? They might not have insurance. Um, they might be going to the to the to the clinics or the hospitals where they're probably more um, inundated with with cases, right? Staff may be short staffed. Their resources are maybe not as uh, plentiful at at a hospital in um, in in a in a lower economic area than it is in a, a higher economic area. Hospital beds in the hallway. Hospital beds in the hallway, right? But then, so so there's that. But I want to even go before that. Is what is the access to care before that? Right. I mean, people are pinning this as a risk factor on on weight, but again, weight is not a symptom. Right. Weight is um, a complex uh, outcome of many different factors. And how much of this, I think, is about a broken healthcare system, right? That is inaccessible to so many folks who don't have insurance right? Who, who are not getting routine medical visits? And where's the weight stigma showing up? How many people in larger bodies are not going to their doctor's appointments because every time they go, they get shamed and lectured about their weight, right? Like, oh, if I need to go in for um, knee pain, that is really debilitating. The first answer I get or, or intervention I get is, well, you got to lose weight before we can do anything. And that's BS, right? Like um, the the real kicker that I, th- as I and I, again, I'm 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 going to be honest. I'm for my own self care. I can't read the news that much for the past months. Um, it's just not helpful to me. Anyways, one of the articles I did read though was about um, the the vaccines that will co- eventually come out, and and they say, well, they won't be as effective for folks in larger bodies. And, and and here's the reason that I read in the article. It's not because they're not um, – it's not because, like, the me- like they don't have the technology, right? It's, it's that they don't test, include folks in larger bodies in a lot of testing and the trials, right? So they could make vaccines slightly different that would perform a little bit better for folks in larger bodies, but they just don't do that testing. They don't do that in the trials. They create one generic vaccine that works generally on smaller bodies. And like, well, I'm like, well, it's not, (laughs) the reason it's not working is because of weight stigma. It's not because the body's broken, right? It's just like, we're not using the advanced science that we have to make a vaccine that's inclusive. It's pretty egregious when you think about it. It's horrible. People, the, the, yeah, I get all. I mean, it, it, I'm on the East Coast here. It's 8:30 a.m. You got my. You got me all fired up already. But no, like, you're the, on the West Coast. I'm oh on the goodness. East Coast. See, I don't even know where I am. <laughs> that's that's the problem. That's how bad it all is, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the podcast with Aaron Flores. He does not know what the coast, East or West Coast, left or right. Still learning those things with Aaron Flores. Thank you. Um, no, I, listen, I, I the amount of people who have died from misdiagnosis or from lack of diagnosis from, from diseases um, 
substandard medical care, right? That's a quote from Dr. Gaudiani. Um, it, you know, weight stigma is killing people daily. Yeah. I believe it was, I forgive me. I can't remember if it was in uh, Linda Bacon's book, Body Respect, or was it in Chavis and Amy's book? Either way, I, I, I'm pretty sure it was in uh, Linda Bacon's. Um, there are so many things that go undiagnosed because like you were saying, it goes straight to weight stigma. Using an, a, a very easy example, such as high blood pressure, they, doctors automatically assume that it's due to weight, yet high, they don't ask anything else. What is your living environment like? How long does it take you to get to work? Do you have a job? Is there any abuse going on? Do you live in a violent, like all of these things, they just go right to weight. No, and I think it's because they, they think they can fix weight. They can't fix um, abuse, right? They can't fix poverty. They can't fix institutional racism. Like none of those things are like, oh, I can't give you a pill for that, but I can do something for the weight. I also can't remember, I have a client who, and this is also not uncommon, who developed anorexia nervosa after she was put on many powerful powerful appetite suppressants because the doctor wanted her to lose weight. We are actually creating another eating disorder. Yeah, that's the sort of very, uh, for, for me, famous quote from Deborah Gard is we're, we're prescribing for those in larger bodies that which we're diagnosing in smaller ones. I just had to pause for a minute. You know, it's, it, you got to like really let that one sink in, right? And because it's true. We're prescribing to those in larger bodies that which we're diagnosing in smaller ones. What are you asking from organizations that you don't feel are rising to the occasion? What are you asking them to do? Ooh, good question. I, I well, one, I think my word of the word of the month is transparency. Is like let us know, let the community, not just me, right, but let everyone know. What are you doing to address this issue? It's not, um, this is something that, you know, is not going away, right? P the people's need for, for inclusive voices and for, for safe, inclusive spaces is not going away. And so I, I think what, what I'm asking for is transparency, like be honest with, with folks. It doesn't, you don't need to give the politically correct answer right? What, what you need to do is sort of stand up, be honest about where you're at and, and be authentic and be transparent, right? It's not, this is not a smokescreen area. This is an area where people really crave authenticity and transparency. And again, this goes back to, it is our responsibility right now, the ones that have the voices to use the voices because so many people don't right now. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's a lot of um, folks who are, are really, I mean, in the past few weeks, what I've been most impressed with is the amount of folks who, who are using their voices, especially to, to ask Nita for some more accountability. I'm really, this is what, this is how movements sort of gain ground and, and gain power is it's not just 
one or two voices, right? It's it's a lot of folks standing up saying a very similar thing, and and I'm thankful that you know I'm um, at a at a company that was allowed that w- where I was allowed to sort of bring forth this idea of, of like, hey, let's also show our support. Let's you know, let's be one of those voices. Um, and that is really powerful. What can people that aren't in the field do? And and I'm not saying, again, like I was just saying, sometimes people are in their own struggles, their own emotional struggles. So they don't have the, at this moment, they don't have the the energy, the emotional energy. What, what are other things? What are things that you found came out of Weight Stigma Awareness Week that, you know, what can people do? Really good question. Which that in and of itself is a complicated subject. Yeah. You know, I think first off, it's really important for new, for folks who are new to this, right? Or just hearing it for the first time to listen, like, just listen, like listen to the lived experience of people in larger bodies, listen to, to what they have to say. Um, challenge those assumptions you have in your head, right? And and just listen. And I think when we do that, right, when we're put down our defensiveness, right, and say like, oh, wow, that that how am I contributing to that? How have I contributed to weight stigma and fat phobia? Um, when we can sort of acknowledge, well, just by being alive in the United States, you've contributed to weight stigma and fat phobia, unless you've been really intentional, is um, that's understandable. And now in is as you learn about it, right, as you listen to these stories, is then realize, okay, how can I start to like change my own thinking about this subject around weight and health, right? How can I start to unlearn some of this. And so for some folks, it might be like saying, Hey, can I go, can we have a session together with your therapist or dietitian so that I can learn more? What books should I read? What podcasts should I listen to? Um, what, 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 uh, what blogs should I start reading? Um, I think that's, that's a start, right? Where we just sort of, you're gaining information. You're just like listening. You're sort of, uh, sort of doing some self-contemplation about what is my implicit role in in this? Um, and then I think what we do next is start to build some allyship, right? If you have, if you're walking around in a thin body, you have thin privilege, right? You're you're navigating this world a little bit easier. How can you use that privilege to help be an ally for folks who who need um, who need support, right? To it, it's it's very different. I'm going to just use the, the Nita example again. It's very different when 40 people put on, um, community members put a post, right? The allyship is, okay, here's a company who has maybe some more influence in the community making a statement, right? That's the allyship right? Who can, those in power, who can be allies and amplify the voices that need to be amplified? I feel, again, like, as I said earlier, this, this podcast episode just feels so rich. What, what do you recommend 
I, again, my brain is kind of going all over the place. What do you recommend for people to say, read starting with that? Cause you had just mentioned that a few minutes ago. Like what are, what are books you recommend? So people start getting educated because even people that are like, no, 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 I don't have any biases. People need to do an honest assessment of themselves and might not know they have certain biases until they read some of this literature. So what do you recommend people read? Well, first, I actually say go to Harvard's website, uh, implicit.harvard.edu, and take the implicit bias test. And there are tons of bias tests around gender, around, um, and there's one on weight. And take that test. And again, I wouldn't be surprised if everyone who takes it didn't have a or has a preference for a thin body. I, I think that's to be expected. So first is knowing your bias. Um, books that I recommend are, I mean, I, I think Body Respect by by Lindo Bacon and Lucy Aframore is fantastic. Uh, I think The Anti-Diet by Christy Harrison is great. Uh, I think The Fuck It Diet by Caroline Dooner is really good. Uh, I love uh, Kise Lehman his memoir heavy. That's a, it's a really amazing book. Um, and, and I will also say, um, here's my vulnerable piece. I don't like reading at all. Um, I, I'm such like the auditory person. So like, I will listen to books maybe like, I think it takes a lot for me to listen to book. Um, to me, I think is what is really helpful is being in community and conversation with people. Um, and so, so that's why I like podcasts. I, I like um, being able to do, um, to like, how do I say this? It, my learning doesn't come on social media, right? My learning comes from um, really having hard, difficult, challenging conversations for me um, with people who can hold space for my learning. Right. Holding space that like, even though, you know, people say, Aaron, like, uh, you know, you seem like an expert in this area. I go, I'm not an expert in this area at, at all. I have so much learning to do. And especially because of all the privileges with which I show up, I think what I can model for folks is that, again, transparency. I can be really open that like I have a lot of learning to do and I will I will step in it. I will make mistakes. I will say something wrong. I will have, because I have biases. So I think what people, in all, it doesn't matter whether it's a book or talking to people, what we need to do is sort of realize you're going to step in it. If you're going to do inclusive work, there's no, no, no perfect way to do it. There's no right way. You just do it, right? And you just like sort of wade into the water and realize you're going to fuck up. You're going to do something wrong. And when you do it is understanding that it's, it's going to happen. How can you see feedback as a gift and being open to feedback, sitting with it, doing some work. Once you get the feedback, doing some self-reflection, some supervision, whatever it is, and realizing that that is a ongoing loop that will happen. What will people get? And and here I am going to give you a little, I hate to use this term, but a little plug, but gonna, it's part of your podcast. Yeah. What do people get 
from your podcast, The Unplugged Dietitian? Uh, Dietitians Unplugged. Oh, excuse me. Dietitians Unplugged. Um, (laughs) You know, it's interesting. I think we, I would say it appeals to both folks who are working in the field, clinicians, but also lay people. Um, So what you're going to get is, like the title sort of says, we're going to be honest and open about what it means to do this work in this field some of the problems with it, some of the things we struggle with. Um, and we want to do just like this, right? We want to have guests on that are like really authentic and just like have really interesting stories to tell and, and will show up like as, as real people, you know? Um, I think that is, that, that's, as a dietitian, we get zero training on, like counseling, how to show up in the room, do all of that work, right? So I think what what Glennis and I really look for is who are the cool people that we want to talk to? Like who are these, who's fun? Like who's interesting? Who like is going to help us evolve in our own process? I want to say my experience with working with dietitians in, and it may just be the experience that I've had, in, uh, incredible in the room with a with a client from a clinical perspective. I can't tell you. And maybe it's because I I worked at residential for so long and res and dietitians in residential treatment centers are always in staff meetings and they're always listening to things. I have always and gratefully worked with dietitians who have been able to sort of hold a little bit of the therapeutic, the clinically therapeutic. It's I, I think it's amazing. Amazing. Well, I think you've been very lucky because I, I think our field has a lot of work to do, to be honest. I mean, I think there's, you know, there there are great dietitians out there doing amazing work. You're right. And I also hear about all the other, fo- like when I, one of the questions I ask folks as soon as they start to work with me is, tell me about your experience with other dietitians. And, and I, you know, I think it, we are not immune to weight stigma, right? Our profession is not immune to it. So I hear a lot of things where where we can where like healing needs to happen just to in our relationship right in like an art and a dietitian client relationship before they can start their work yeah yeah i also just as i was thinking about this i do think that working in treatment centers gives a really really broader perspective of clients for both clinician therapists and dietitians and that's what I, I just sort of at least at least the treatment center so i i was a clinical director at montanito for many many years and i think that as a team we all learn together yeah no i i, I can see that and so so again i'm just going to say like where we need to do better yeah the uh, is um, because traditionally we've seen, you know, not a lot of diverse folks come through treatment, right? Is that that's where also like treatment is hopefully going to do better, right? Is like, I think you're right. I think there's so many individual stories and like nuances to each client, right? And think about how that will expand further as we bring in and and make space for and allow space for more diverse, not only diverse clients, but diverse staff, right? I mean, I think it, it, it has to be reflected in every level of an organization, that diversity. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. 
Aaron, as much as I wish we could continue this for so much, so much longer, because this is such a wonderful conversation, I am going to have to start bringing this podcast to an end because I think both of us have clients in about 10 minutes. <laughs> so I can tell them to wait. <laughs> no, just kidding. That would, I would not do that. Come on. I want everyone to know that I, this is why I said this podcast was going to be so funny. As most of you know, I'm the least technological human being on earth. And I referenced earlier before we got on IGTV, which I didn't know what it meant. And Aaron, what did you say it was? Intergalactic? Oh, I tried to get Karen going down a whole rabbit hole that like IGTV is a new channel on DirecTV. It's like channel 247. And it just posts intergalactic pictures uh, 24-7. And I was and, like, wow. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. No, it's compelling TV. <laughs> you can't not watch it. I mean, I'm going to go look for it. I'm going to have my my client wait. So oh, yeah. <laughs> Quarks, quasars, black holes, celestial beings. No, it's just, I mean, come on. All right, everyone. I did believe it at first. I was like, wow, <laughs> that's not what I thought it meant. Okay. Because, <laughs> Aaron, you, you, are very, you are very compelling. So before we end, though, I always do have like to end with a question. But before we get to the question, is there anything that I didn't ask or say that you would like to to say before we close? No, I'm, I'm just very thankful for this time to be able to, to connect with you and your listeners. And just thanks for having me on. It, it has been wonderful, Aaron. Absolutely. So, Aaron, my final question for you is if you could live in another time period, but stay in the same place you live now, when would you want to live? So I hope my answer fits with the, when, when you wrote this before, uh, and it might not because it changed. Um, honestly, like if I could live any time in, in the exact same place, LA is the most crowded, annoying place in the world. And I, and it's my home. Um, to live in this town when it was still orange groves and like to be able to navigate this city um, when there were like, you know, the red cars and, and like when it was sort of just going through that evolution, uh, I think would have been amazing. Um, and so I, I really do like love so much about LA. It's just too many people here. I would love to have experienced this place when it was less crowded um, and starting to evolve. Sounds wonderful. As someone who lived in LA for a few years, I agree. And it sounds wonderful. Again, Aaron, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. It was absolutely wonderful having you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone. That's another episode for Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. I look forward to talking with all of you again next week. Okay, stay safe. Take care. To wrap for this week's episode of Recovery Bites, Real Talk with Recovered Professionals. And I thank each and every one of you for tuning in with me. You can view more from today's episode, including guest information and excerpts, by visiting www.karenlewisedc.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to future shows by searching Recovery Bites on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast. All right, everybody, be well and thanks for listening to my bite for the week.